Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we are delighted to have back one of our favorite guests on Saturday Night at the Movies, writer-director Nicholas Meyer, who previously discussed his films Time After Time and Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Tonight, we journey back to post-Civil War times to discuss his 1993 screenplay for Summersby, which starred Richard Gere, Jodie Foster, and Bill Pullman. Welcome back, Nick. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back. You you seem to be a real history buff. I mean, a lot of your projects are related to history. I mean, certainly between Time After Time and even Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan with some of its uh, historical references to Tale of Two Cities, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then, of course, relating to me, Greek history. When you were back in school, was history of particular fascination for you? Yes, um, it was. It and English were probably the only things to for to which I displayed any, or for which I displayed any aptitude, whatever. I was a very poor student. Um, I used to tell people when they asked that I I had a C plus average. Um, and my late wife used to laugh and say it was always my addition of the plus that she found particularly pathetic. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't good at math. I wasn't good at whatever those other things are, um, biology. Um, I, I never understood what they were saying. The only thing I've ever understood in my life, uh, if if I understand it at all, uh, our stories and history has is chock full of stories so i read a lot of history and i read a lot of biography um and i have a fairly retentive memory do you uh, do you remember a particular book that you had when you were young that uh, if you had it today you would be quite pleased to have if you could see my library, which is overflowing in two rooms at the moment, I could say with some certainty that I have every every book. They say that they say that Cervantes was the last person to have read every book. Uh, he was apparently s s such a bibliomaniac that if he was walking down the street and saw a scrap of paper on the cobblestones, he would have to pick it up to see what was written there. But of course, there were fewer books in Cervantes' time uh, than there are in mine. I don't know. There's lots of books here that I have yet to read. That's for sure. That's because you probably saw Fahrenheit 451 when you were young, and you're making sure you get to them before they're burned. Well, book burning is back in fashion, as we know. Uh, if And as the poet Heinrich Heine said, once they start burning books, it's only a short 
skip and a hop to burning people. Unfortunately, we've seen that in history. Uh, the book that I remember very vividly from my childhood was a just kind of an anthology called Stories of Great Battles. And uh, before we were discussing, before the interview, we were discussing uh, Pheidippides and his uh, run from, from Marathon to Athens. Uh, the Battle of Marathon was one of the great battles. Uh, each of the battles, they had a rather poetic title. The title for, for that particular chapter on Pheidippides was Rejoice, We Conquer. And then uh, I remember Gettysburg was uh, the guns began to tear at them, when the guns began to tear at them. And then um, Shalon, uh, Romans versus Visigoths, fierce, huge, and bloody. And Waterloo, the guard can die. And uh, the, the, these things stick in my mind like I read it yesterday, and we're talking 60 years ago plus. So I watched Summersby for the first time just recently. I had a little snip of it on one of my audio tape collages, the first five minutes of the movie when, when Richard Gere arrives back. And I always was intrigued, but for some reason I never saw it. And then it popped up on one of the streaming channels and I was, I was beguiled by it. Um, I thought it was a very interesting story with really wonderful performances. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the project from the first part. I do do re, I did read recently that it actually is technically a remake of a French film called The Return of Martin Guerre. Well, this is a story filled with um, ambiguities and multiple interpretations. If you've if you've seen Rashomon, uh, you know that you know you can have the same series of events recounted by different narrators who see things or experience them in vastly different ways. Um, the events chronicled in Summersby, uh, I should also add in the same breath that I am not at this point uh, the only writer of the script because other writers were brought on. It's, it's not an exclusively happy tale. Um, but the, the story of Martin Guerre, which was the inspiration, not, not the movie, but the actual story, right. Uh, was the inspiration for a version of that story, an updated version set in America that I believe I was asked to write by Arnon Milchen and his company, which I think is called Regency or New Regency Pictures. And to tell your listeners, Martin Guerre is a story that, that occurred in the French Pyrenees in the 15th or 16th centuries in a little village called Achtiga. And in that village were two very well-to-do farming families. There was no bourgeoisie in existence as yet, but these people in a hundred years would definitely be bourgeois. But at the time they were they were well they were successful farming 
families. One was the Geir family, G-U-E-R-R-E, and the other was the family of the of the bride. Her name was Bertrand de Rolls, R-O-L-S. Isn't the word guerre, G-U-E-R-R-E, isn't that the French word for war? Yeah. Okay. I mean, but he might have been Smith. It, it, it doesn't really signify. In any case, um, when Martin Guerre was 15, he was betrothed in marriage to Bertrand de Rolls, or they, they were married. She was about 12 or something. Um, people did everything earlier in those days because they tended not to live as long. You remember um, in Romeo and Juliet, somebody says that Juliet is, uh, I think, 13 years old. And then the nurse says, younger than she are happy uh, mothers made. So Martin was apparently a surly kid who married this young girl impregnated her, and then ran away, just split, and was not heard from And in, again. And in doing so, he condemned his wife to a kind of lifelong widowhood, except she couldn't remarry because there was no such thing as divorce, and nobody knew whether this man was alive or dead. Not a very nice Thing to do, you may say. In any case, about six or seven years later, Martin Guerre came back. And he was no longer surly, but expansive and fulled out. And, and uh, she was overjoyed to see him. Uh, he had been away at war, and uh, of which there was no shortage at that time on the continent. And uh, everybody was glad to see him. And he sort of took up where they left off. I think they made another baby. There was only one problem. And that was a sneaking suspicion on the part of first one member of the village and then more, that the Martin Guerre who returned was not the same as the Martin Guerre who went away. And... Uh, what happened was the, the town sort of broke into camps and, and there were clues in both directions. Um, but they, you know, there was no photography, there were no fingerprints. Um, so difficult to say for sure. And the case went to trial. And we know about the case because the judge who tried the case, whose name was Jean de Corat, uh, wrote it down in a book. Well, strangest case I ever handled. And what happened was that um, th there was a rumor that the real Martin Guerre had lost one leg in a battle. And the town was on the point of finding for the Martin Guerre who came back. No question, he's the guy. When suddenly a, a, a a limping clump was heard in the courtroom and who should return on one leg with a crutch. But what everyone recognized instantly is the real Martin Guerre wow. and all hell broke loose from there. So Arnon Milchen 
Uh, and, and one of the things you learn is that his wife, Bertrand, uh, knew from the first that it wasn't her husband who had come back, but she welcomed him as an opportunity to escape her lonely life. And um, there was no question this guy was an improvement. Anyway, I think he was hanged and drawn and quartered and disemboweled and all kind mm -hmm. of unpleasant things. Um, Arnold Milchen asked if I could find a way to take this story, update it, and move it to America. And now, did you did you know Arnon from uh, from before? Uh, had you any relationship with him? I can't remember. Okay, I may I may have met him, but I but I don't I don't I can't remember. Anyway, um, so I thought, well, to make this story work, you would have to find the last point in human history where all the things that could have decided the issue like fingerprints, like photography, like proximity to knowledge or a big city or any of those things that would have helped solve the mystery uh, were available. So it wasn't very long before I decided that the Civil War, the post-Civil War was where this might be possible. Yes, Matthew Brady and other people were taking photographs, but they were not common. Um, telegraphy was not common, and fingerprints were virtually uh, unknown at the time. Although, if you read Mark Twain's Puddinghead Wilson, uh, which is set before the Civil War, fingerprints do play a major role in the solution of that murder mystery. Uh, but it's the first time they appear in a book as far as I know. So then I, um, with the support of, of Arnon and New Regency Films, I took off across the American South, starting in Virginia, uh, looking for a time and a place in the post-Civil War era where such a story might be plausible. And I found it, in rural Tennessee, which was the last state to join the Confederacy, I believe, and the first state to leave it. Um, and so I came back and I wrote the script. It's not exactly the script that you saw in the movie because other people wound up working on it. And that's a, another part of the story. But that's how I came to write it. And that's how I came to choose. Um, it wasn't based on the French film by Danielle Veen, which is a pretty good film with Gérard Depardieu as our, and Natalie Bay as Bertrand. It's, good, it's a good movie. But um, I didn't base it on the movie. I based it on, um, there are several people who wrote about Martin Guerre, the first being the judge, Jean de Corat. Also, my recollection is that one of the spectators in the trial was Michel de Montaigne and also Alexandre Dumas uh, incorporated the story of Martin Guerre in a novel of his called Les Deux Dianes, The Two Dianes. Oh. So those were part of my sources. 
and there and there's also history books about Martin Guerre, and there's yeah. even a there's even a Martin Guerre opera. Let me uh, just do a little bit of a tangent question for a second. Um, World War II has probably spawned thousands of movies worldwide. The American Civil War, certainly the most uh, violent and titanic conflict ever to occur on the U.S. continent, has spawned very few films. Why do you think that's true? I, I don't think I have an intelligent or certainly not a previously thought out answer. There are a, a lot of movies about the Civil War. Of course, the first one that everybody thinks of is Gone with the Wind, but also, you know, to its infamy, uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Um, there's also John Huston's The Red Badge of Courage. Um there's Rain Tree County. Um, there's Glory, Glory, Gettysburg, the Horse Soldiers, but but not as many as you might think. Um, when you um, when you contracted to write this script uh, for Arnon Milchin, did you say that you wanted to direct it? Or was I think it, I, I think I was the original director. Yeah, you were the original. So you were contracted to both write and direct because you are known at that time early 90s as one of Hollywood's top directors. I mean, you had some terrific credits. Tell us, um, so you turn in your screenplay and like a lot of writers, uh, you're you're sitting there waiting what's gonna happen. What happened next? Um, again, this is my recollection and my version of events. Okay. They loved it. They loved this script. And it was then at Universal where uh, New Regency was situated. Right. Then Arnon and Universal uh, ended their deal. Um, I'm not sure why or what was that was all about. But Arnon and New Regency went over to uh, Warner Brothers. And there was a big tug of war about what properties they had developed at Universal that they would be allowed to take with them. And the one that he was absolutely adamant about was taking what I called Summersby. That was my title. Um, then I didn't, I, I again, this is so long ago. The next thing I remember is being told that Richard Gere and Jodie Foster we're, we're going to play the leads. I, at that point, had a sort of difficult choice to make. I admire both these actors enormously. Uh, I, I can't begin to enumerate and detail and extol my admiration. But it wasn't the movie I was thinking about. And I realized... This is, you know, the real world that two big stars were much more important to this movie at, at that point, certainly in my life, than I was. So I said, listen, go with God and, you know, uh, I will 
do all the writing work that that you like. Um, but I bowed out. Now, can you elaborate on what you just said about the fact it wasn't what I wanted? Why? No, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to elaborate about it. Okay. Um, it, I I was I was thinking in 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 different terms, mm -hmm. and um, I mean, I, I don't I don't want you to go any further than you want. No, go. no, no. I just thought yeah. I heard a knocking at the door. Anyway, but would, but would 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 it be the fact that the stars might overwhelm the characters, or was nothing to do with that? Nothing to do with it. Okay, got it. Anyway, what happened was I then heard that uh, uh, an English director named John Amiel was going to direct the movie. And um, I thought, okay, and somebody uh, gave me his uh, contact information. And um, he, he was English, and I was living in London at the time. But I called him up and I said, congratulations. And if there's anything I can do to help, uh, please let me know. And he said, well, he was very curious about my research into the Reconstruction era in which the film is shot. And incidentally, if you think movies about the Civil War are, relatively speaking, scarce, movies about Reconstruction are virtually non-existent. So this was, you know, sort of uncharted territory. And I said, that's fine. Um, you live in London. I'm in London. When you're back, which was, I guess, the following week, uh, come to tea and I will turn over all my research to you. And uh, I didn't hear from him. And I didn't quite understand what was going on. And I also kept waiting for production notes regarding the rewrite. Um, and then I heard that another writer had been assigned to work on the script. I was very surprised and indignant since I had brought this thing into being and I didn't know why matters had changed but I thought about it and I thought well he's the director he should get to pick the writer he wants to work with so that calmed me down for 24 hours and then I thought well hang on a minute <laughs> somebody said the chief problem in Hollywood is behavior and I thought wait a minute aren't I owned the owed the courtesy of a phone call saying, Nick, you're not going to like this, but the crazy director we hired insists on using his own, etc. So there was an executive at, at Arnold Milchan's company, whom I do not intend to name, um, but he was the point guy on this thing. And I phoned him in a state of high dudgeon and told him what I thought of his behavior. I'm sorry, what word did you just say in his state of high? Dudgeon. You can look it up. I will look it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so I didn't hear anything from 
anybody, um, a, a good friend of mine was Richard Gere's manager, and I got some of the details of this later. But um, apparently the, the rewrite didn't make people happy. Richard Gere kept saying, well, what's wrong with the Meyer version? Why can't we go back to Nick for revisions? And the unnamed executive said, Nick is not available. This is my understanding of what happened. So then they hired a third writer. And somehow the ultimate result of the movie that you know is a cobbled together um, collage. I'm not sure what the right is of these different drafts. I'm thinking of the word pastiche. Well, a pastiche, in as I understand it, is when a writer takes characters created by somebody else and creates a new story around those oh. characters. I, I don't think pastiche quite covers it. In any case, um, I heard no more about the movie until I saw it. And that's the movie that you are talking about. And what was your impression of the movie that would start it out with you? Well, there were many things that I thought were quite good. And then there were things that I didn't understand at all. Um, I, I did not understand the Bible thumping preacher that Laurel, who's the character played by Jodie Foster, and I, I sort of named her for my wife, whose name was Lauren, but in the movie, she's, I, I think I called her Laurel. Um, I didn't understand why in her husband's absence or death, she takes up with this religious maniac, as I remember him. Maybe he, he's not a maniac. And certainly nothing against Bill Pullman, who's not only a great actor, but rather a friend of mine. But I, he had been completely changed from what I had written. And how had you written him? I had written him as an English uh, cotton merchant who had been trapped in America by the Union blockade. Um, he was not he was not a weirdo. He was a thoughtful, caring, educated man. And I could sort of understand his appeal to Laurel in a way that the preacher man didn't quite track for me. This is just my opinion. But that was, an, that was perhaps the most glaring example of things I, I couldn't follow. The for me the movie is interesting and in, because the audience you're not really sure I, I don't even know if you're sure at the end who Richard Gere is I mean the way the movie begins I don't know if it started in your script but he's he's I guess there's a sequence where he's burying somebody although you don't see who's burying who and then he's walking near the property where Jodie Foster's character, Laurel, lives, and he bumps into one of his old friends, 
and says some words that make the friend think that, yes, he's Jack Summersby. And I, I'm immediately aware that obviously this guy has the rhythm of speech or some kind of remembrance and a knowledge of this guy's family that would lead you to believe he was Summersby. But you're immediately believing he's Jack Summersby. Did you start out the same way? No. No, okay. I did have him returning. There's no question I had him returning. But the the opening scene of of the the con the burying of the body or whatever I I, I don't remember it very clearly. Uh, I didn't write that. Yeah, and you you don't see it clearly because it's almost like a, a series of images that you have no idea what's going on, and then all of a sudden you're walking with a bearded Richard Gear. Um, do you remember any other strict differences to what you had plotted that stuck out stood out in your mind? You know, I have to say I did not get a chance to rewatch the movie before this conversation. Okay. So so I may be somewhat inarticulate, but I those were two of the things that really struck me was the opening and um the business with the others the other the suitor um the 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 preacher man you know this is a, a interesting movie because of the pairing of two actors that you wouldn't normally see together i mean um well that's maybe... that's kind of like in the story too in a way right right i mean jodie foster is one of our greatest ask uh, actresses she's won two oscars she's very very respected also as a film director but uh you don't necessarily see her in a lot of romantic leading parts i mean uh there are probably 30 actresses i could think of playing laurel and yet uh they chose jodie um, what was your impression of her as an actor in your in this role you had created? She's a terrific actress. You, I can't fault her. I can't fault Richard Gere either. Richard Gere, to, for my money, is one of our most charismatic actors. Someone who just uh, he he just has a a quality, and I thought that. I, I, again, I see uh, Jodie Foster more as a director now, but this may be one of her most romantic roles because there's a great deal of romance in this movie. Uh, I thought that was a powerful part of it. Have as you seen her? Have you seen Nyad? I haven't seen the latest movie. You're talking about... Uh, Diana about Nyad swimming from Cuba to Florida. Cuba to and, Florida. And, and, and Jodie Foster plays her best friend who turns into a coach. It's a terrific movie. It's a wonderful movie. The, um, well, like I was saying, I, I think the movie has a strong romantic feeling. Uh, would you have characterized your original screenplay as a romantic film as much as it became? Was that? Yes. 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 It was okay. always intended to be uh, a romantic film. Um, as I said earlier, in the original story, uh, Bertrand de Rolls knew from the get-go that this guy was not her husband. But for purely pragmatic personal reasons, she was prepared to accept him 
But the additional sort of ir irony and tragedy of it is that she actually falls in love with this guy. He's lovable. I mean, he's he's other things, too. Uh, I, I should also say, apropos of the opening and this mysterious, I don't know if you're looking at a, at a murder or, a, or what's going on, but the real, the, the, the false Martin Guerre, who went by the name of Pancette, P-A-N-C-E-T-T-E, how he came to impersonate Martin Guerre is that they were both in POW camp together during these European wars. And I guess the real Martin Guerre told him where he was from and said something to the effect of, I'll never go back to that place again as long as I live. Whereupon Pancette, who was a kind of shiftless, I guess, opportunist, uh, saw or thought he saw an opportunity because these two guys resembled each other in a certain superficial way. And so he started pumping Martin Guerre for all this information about his hometown and the people and so on. And uh, so he did not kill Martin Guerre, uh, which, as I recall, the, the, the Summersby movie implies that he did, which which makes him a vastly more lethal and I, I guess to my way of thinking, less sympathetic character than Pancette, who, who stole his identity, but he didn't steal his life. This whole subplot where Jack Summersby realizing that they're all going broke because their land can't accommodate cotton or whatever the, the crop they had before, and then decides to purchase a, a large amount of tobacco seeds to reseed their crops. Was that all in your story? Yes. In fact, uh, I I started to get the idea. Uh, I, I said I started my research trip in Virginia, and I believe I went to the Philip Morris or Liggett Myers uh, tobacco factories, cigarette factories. And I started to learn about um tobacco and different kinds of tobacco and i also in my somewhat encyclopedic memory uh recalled another film which i think is also a post civil war film called bright leaf and bright leaf was gary cooper and patricia neal um and it was about tobacco. And I was always, I thought that's, that's an interesting thing. So yes, that was in the original script. Got it. Got it. Now in the movie that, uh, that was made, um, there are clues along the way that something isn't, uh, or something is a little rotten in Denmark. And one of the clues is that uh, he goes in to get a new pair of shoes and his shoe size on file is a lot different than what his actual shoe size is. That's okay. in the original story of Martin Guerre. Ah, okay. That was that was one of the things they argued about. How how could his feet get you know 
bigger or smaller, smaller, I guess, was yeah, smaller. what didn't make sense. And you added that in your first draft. I kept it. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then there's another scene where some um, some rough characters come to Laurel's house and they're looking for Jack and they're making some accusations that lead, lead that lead you to believe that uh, the Jack Summersby is guilty of some crime or something, or perhaps he's not Jack Summersby. Was that also in your original? I don't remember that that particular version of it was there. As I say, my memory of the movie itself is slightly hazy, but I do know that although everybody in the town initially welcomed uh, Jack Summersby as they welcomed the returned Martin Gare, um, various things in his behavior, particularly, as I recall, a certain acquisitiveness as regards land began to alienate uh, people who had previously uh, accepted him and they started to wonder about things. The other thing I used and I borrowed it from the Odyssey was the notion of a dog, a faithful dog. In 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 the Odyssey, um, there is a dog, I'm trying to think if his name was Argus, I can't remember, who was a puppy when Odysseus left for Troy. And 20 years, Odysseus comes back, but totally disguised as, as a, a rootless, shiftless beggar. And the dog, who is literally on his last legs, recognizes his master, wags his tail, and then drops dead. And I took a variant of that and planted it uh, into Summersby. And when my other suitor, the English cotton merchant, um, sort of hears this whole story. He's he says, "Listen, I'm I'm not one of the suitors, and and this man is is not Odysseus come back from the. He's educated enough to to see the parallels, but I think all of that is lost in the in the finished film." One of my favorite costume movies of the 50s was the original Ivanhoe with Robert Taylor and Elizabeth. Oh, great. Taylor. Great movie. Great movie. Ivanhoe comes back to his father's house. In Cedric disguise. the Saxon. Cedric the Saxon. Played by Finlay Curie. Finlay Curie, the great Finlay Curie. And of course, the, uh, the, the, per, the, the entity that recognizes dear Ivanhoe is the dog. So that's definitely a nice trope. Um well, you know, this, this movie, uh, again, I'm relatively new to the experience. I, I enjoyed very much. And it sounded like uh, this was not a pleasant experience for you. It's funny because I didn't realize that until I started reading into it a little bit. Uh, technically, the writer who gets credit with the script for you is a woman, Sarah. Kernishan. Kernocha, yes. And uh, often I a, think a very like gifted woman, I might add, a very gifted woman. She wrote a movie that I absolutely love called Impromptu, in which um, 
uh, oh my gosh, I'm 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 blanking on the Judith. It, it's about the young Frederick Chopin, and um, it has Jul the late Julian Sands as Franz Liszt, um, and uh, she, she plays George Sand, and it's a very funny, charming, beautiful movie. I th I think it was directed by her husband James Lapine, who is a frequent collaborator of Stephen Sondheim. Oh. Um, it's a lovely film. So she's a very gifted person. There's no question. As a director, watching another director direct your script, uh, do you think Mr. Amiel did a very decent job? I, I, I thought the film works pretty well from a directing point of view. I'm sure you had creative thoughts as to the way it was shot, I would think. John Amiel is an enormously gifted guy uh, who's, who's made a, a lot of wonderful films. One of his best is a television series that starred Michael Gambon called The Singing Detective, oh. which, which, which starred Michael Gambon and Janet Sussman and was written by Dennis Potter, who was one of the great television writers in the history of the medium. So I have uh, nothing but respect for for his work, but he did direct a different script than what I intended. Um, and I suppose I'm entitled to my qualified opinion of the result. Sure, sure. I know that it's a, a little bit uncomfortable for you to talk about, but um, is there an overall sense that this is what I would have done that was quite different from his vision because, I mean, I watched the movie. I I, I liked it. I liked it very much enough to call you up to talk about it. Um, can you give me kind of a creative sentence as to how you would have envisioned it a little bit differently? Well, my substantive differences have to do with the casting and with the fidelity to the way I wrote the script. Right. This is an this is an expert director. He knows exactly what he's doing. <clears throat> and I from that standpoint, it is not only presumptuous, but also I suspect erroneous for me to criticize the result because he wasn't directing my my script. Right. Right. When you were writing your script, did you have an actor in mind to play Jack? No, I had not got that far, or, nor Laurel. I hadn't gotten Laurel. that far. Writers, writers have a very difficult life at times. You know, they don't get the respect. You have to strike to get any bit or crumb that the companies give you. And often, even when you get the strike done, it doesn't do any good. You're fight. You're always fighting. Uh, it's always an uphill battle through the mud. How do you personally maintain your sanity in situations like this when you are not being treated like a human being? Well, that is an extremely poignant question. Um, you know, somebody said that wanting to be a screenwriter is like wanting to be co-pilot. Um, you're you're definitely 
low on the totem pole and writers have had to fight for everything that not only we've got, but any anybody else in the industry has gotten. Writers were pioneers in fighting for residuals for when when movies went on television and on airplanes and so forth. Uh, the Directors Guild, to my knowledge, has never struck. I think they struck once for about four hours, but they don't strike. The, we're the ones in the trenches and on the picket lines. We've been joined in this last go round by actors and other uh, union members. Um, but it, it, there's a lot of angry writers. There's a lot of writers who drink uh, or do other quote recreational uh, drugs. And you have to sort of understand why. Um, I think I basically have a rather sunny disposition. Maybe that's because I also write novels. And when I write a novel, I have total control. Um, so I have a, a kind of outlet. But I remember, you know, being in therapy at various times and discussing humiliations that I've experienced and saying to my therapist, where do I put the rage? Where do I put the rage? And her saying, well, I see our time is just about up. Uh, and, so, and so once again, not getting the respect you need. My, my, my frustration and being a writer myself and trying to get my scripts read, there seems to be a tremendous, um, how do I put this? There's a lack of respect for the written word more than ever. It's like when you write a screenplay these days, it's not like people want to read it. It's almost like what they're saying is, bring it to us when you have the director and the actors all yes. packaged. Yeah, we're now known as not as writers, we're known as content creators and extremely, if it's possible to get more demeaned. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're we're a necessary evil, which they will you know try to replace us with chatbot, whatever that is, um, to the what extent they can. Um, Although I did hear something interesting on that account, uh, Nick, because because studios and streamers have armies of lawyers that demand that uh, chain of title be incorruptible, that you have to have specific signed notes from writers, you know, that they wrote this. Whereas if you suddenly allow chat GPT or the latest AI equivalent to enter the picture, who knows who owns that material and who knows where it was stolen from. So it was explained to me by a studio executive that the fear of AI may not be as, as palpable as it's being presented to be. Well, we should only you know be so lucky yeah um i i forgot where we left off before we got off onto ai um well i was going to say something i was going to say that uh, as writers uh sometimes we're forced in our screenplays to remove things that we would never do but for various reasons have to be removed and i was once told that you have to be able to kill your pearls and live with it 
because you're getting your movie made and not don't don't fight back. I and think it's part of a larger thing that you have to understand. And and I and I don't think you can blame the studios for this. Sometimes the things you love the most are the things that no longer belong. You you get an idea for a scene and around this scene you write a whole story. But once you've written the whole story, the one thing that no longer belongs is the scene that inspired it. And you feel a vague sense of disloyalty, um, but you have to be ruthless. Whether, whether on, in art, it's a matter of, you know, what are the what are the rules? The rules are: if it works, leave it in. Variety is the spice of life. Henry James said, "The least demand that you can make of a work of art is that it be interesting, and the most demand is that it be moving." I think I am quite prepared to be ruthless when i wrote the screenplay based on my novel the seven percent solution in which sherlock holmes meets sigmund freud uh, herb ross directed the movie and very generously allowed me to be on the set at at all times and we had a running kind of battle in which i kept begging him to cut things out of my script that I recognized were superfluous. And Herb was scandalized and kept saying, no, no, this is essential. And to the, you know, I, I think the, the movie is a pretty fantastic movie. But at the time, all I could see was, let me slice this out. Let me get rid of that. And so I think the idea that you have to you know, shed the things that you love the most is not exclusively the, the fault or the origin of the studios. You have to be ruthless with your own work. You, you have to be prepared to, you know, say, yeah, it's, it was a beautiful shot of a sunset and it took hours to get, but it slows the movie down and it's no longer part of the story. So it has to go. I wonder if you could apply this ability to make those decisions to your case where you've turned in your screenplay, you had hoped to direct, it's now gone with the wind, no pun intended, and now you, you just have to move on. Are you able to accept that and move on without just eating yourself up alive? Well, that's a totally different situation than me deciding to eliminate something. And this, this goes back to me talking to my shrink and saying, where do I put the rage? Um, and I think writers who are perhaps more sensitive than me or who have a um, thinner skin than maybe I do uh, go more nuts than I did. I became depressed, you know, and, and I'm sure I sipped a lot of cognac. Um, also, uh, having directed and having directed beautifully, uh, you get comfortable with that chair. I, I bet you never went. You weren't probably weren't even invited to the set. No, I was not. I was absolutely right. not. Remember, I, <laughs> I they were all told. And as I said, I heard this from my 
friend who was Richard Gere's manager, I was, I, they were all told I was unavailable because Richard kept saying, well, why can't we go back to what he called the Meyer version? Have you ever spent any time with Richard Gere? I've spent a little time with him. He's a very lovely man. Right. Did he say anything about Summersby? I, I don't recall. I, I probably left it alone. Uh, well, what's what's nice about Summersby is that uh, whether it was your script or the rewrite or a ma amalgam of the two and the, all the creativity, it was a big success for the studio. Well, the other thing I would say, and we're running out of time here, but is when you see a movie that you've worked on, whether you've written it or directed it, it doesn't matter. When you watch it the first time, the 10th time, and you'll see it a lot during screenings and previews and stuff, you tend to focus on all the things that you find wrong or lacking with it. And the, the real, um, uh, uh, let's say, a more objective view may not come for 10 or 20 years later. I've looked at movies that I've worked on where all I could see for the first 10 years were either my or someone else's mistakes. And when I look at some of those films now, I think, Jesus, this is pretty good, or this is much better than I remembered because I was so hung up on a cut that bothered me or a close-up that was missing or something that I literally didn't see the big picture. And that only comes with time. Well, I think time uh, has shown that this was a, a, a nice piece of work. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you at least had a chance to, to initiate it. I'm sorry you didn't get a chance to direct it. I think it would have been equally as good, if not better. Uh, a Nicholas Meyer directing job generally is met with positives. I'm hoping you get back in that chair sooner than later. Well, I better or I'll drop dead. <laughs> we have been listening to the wonderful Nicholas Meyer. Uh, you've been listening to Saturday Night the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. Uh, thank you for listening. If you'd like to subscribe, it's free. Stephen J. Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies is on all the podcasts. And if you have any questions or suggestions for topics for future shows, you can email me at stevejrubin at gmail.com. And J is spelled out J-A-Y. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Always fun. <laughs>